0: Welcome to the Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening.
1: The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Hey readers and writers, welcome to this episode 343 of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and we've got a, uh, another great lineup for you today.
2: Yeah, we're going to start off first with an author feature of Robert McCaw, a trial lawyer turned acclaimed author of the Hawaiian Mystery Series, and we're going to talk about his latest novel in the series, Retribution.
3: Up next, we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called Rules of Writing Part 1, Morning Pages.
0: Okay, and then we've got a, a blogger here, uh, Dana Sachs. Uh, her title is chronicling the uniquely human need to lend a hand even in the darkest times.
2: And then we're going to finish up as always with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode.
0: Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? Uh, this month we're celebrating the release of book four. Hard to believe book four already. It's uh, Woo-hoo. Before the Right Quotes series titled Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research, and we are inspired by this series. Yes, we are, aren't we, Sarah?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, we're very excited to share these inspirational and practical quotes. They come from over 500 podcast interviews. The authors quoted are hardworking, award-winning, super talented New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries.
3: Yep, and this book reveals how they really feel about storytelling, inspiration, and research. Um, To learn more, you just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Um, You can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold.
2: Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. (laughs) So look for that link on the podcast books page of our website.
0: Yeah, and you can, uh, when you get our podcast books page on the website, you'll see uh, the book covers and the links for all the books, including uh, those that are out that you can order and those that are uh, available to pre-order. Uh, next uh, in the series is going to be uh, book five, Writing Techniques and Characters. That's a July 1 release. Uh, book six, Writing, Community, Revision, and Editors. That's an August 1st release. Book seven, The Emotional Writing Journey. That's September 1st. And on October 1st, we have book eight, Publishing and Book Marketing.
2: And then if you want to receive all eight of these wonderful books for free, you can join our street team. Um, just go to the link on the contact tab at com. Also on the podcast books page at the website, there's a link. All you have to do to receive all the books for free, the eBooks, is just agree to leave short, honest reviews. Um, just a few words about how you felt about the books. They're not heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections.
3: Yeah, my dog's a member of the uh, street team, so (laughs) she also wanted to remind you guys that if you become a Patreon supporter of the podcast, it's only $5 a month, Um, and we'll give you all the books for free as soon as they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive episodes of uh, content that you don't get on the regular show um, on the craft and business of writing, so lots of good stuff.
0: All right, folks. Uh, Well, right after this, we're going to start in with Act One, our interview segment of the show, so uh, stay with us.
2: We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at com or the websites of the hosts, dot com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time.
0: Hey, listeners, welcome back. Uh, We're in Act One now, the interview segment of the show. We've got uh, an interview with Robert McCall. Uh, It's uh, his book, Retribution. It's in a series, a Hawaii mystery series, a police procedural. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, Robert.
2: Sure. Uh, Robert McCall grew up in a military family traveling the world. He graduated from Georgetown, served as a U.S. Army lieutenant, and earned a law degree from the University of Virginia. After graduating law school, he spent a year as a judicial clerk for Supreme Court Justice Hugo black. You practice law in Washington, D.C., and New York City. You represented investment banks, lawyers, directors, and other clients in complex civil and criminal cases, including many that generated significant press coverage. I feel like we have a lot of lawyers turned authors <laughs> yeah. on this show. I wonder <laughs> so why. So true. <laughs> <What, wonder, wonder, laughs> I wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Having lived on the big island of Hawaii, McCaw's writing is imbued by his more than 20-year love affair with the Pacific Paradise. And he lives with his wife, Callie, and they split their time between New York City and San Diego.
0: All right. Uh, Hannah, how about a little bit on the synopsis of the book here?
3: Yeah, sure. So as people around him come under attack, chief detective, okay, Robert, I'm just going to give this a shot, <laughs> Kua <Kawha laughs> Kane, um, wonders if he, I love the name, by the way, very creative, uh, wonders if he might be the real target. If so, who is behind this trail of retribution? With his secret criminal past, Kua confronts an all-out offensive Against those closest to him in the police force to which he has devoted his life. As the bodies pile up, Kawa finds himself the ultimate target of a ruthless adversary and must risk it all to survive. That sounds good.
0: Yeah, and it's gotten some praise as well.
3: Yeah, so Library of Tortuga says, this is a book that you are going to be frantically flipping the pages to find out what is going to happen. It balances such an enjoyable level of thrill and mystery while reading that you feel a part of the world. Um, This is my favorite book in the series so far. And then Book Anon Blogs calls it a propulsive and explosive book. Very much recommended.
0: Yeah, and I enjoyed it. It, uh, Well, it it the thing I liked about it, uh, in addition to the thriller aspect of it, which I enjoy thrillers, is that it's a part of the world I'm not that familiar with. I mean, uh, so he, he's got a real understanding of Hawaii. and He takes us to the national parks and there's some scenes where they're running through these lava tubes and that kind of thing. So it's, it's kind of cool. So anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's listen in to Robert uh, and uh, hear the interview. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the latest novel in your uh, mystery series here, Retribution.
4: Uh, thank you. It's the fifth book in the series, so uh, uh, there's a lot of a lot of readers have uh, commented on uh, the enjoyment of the of the books and uh, following the series.
0: Yeah, um, and before we talk about the book, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your path to being a mystery novelist. We were talking offline before we started here. Uh, you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. You've written books. I've written books. Uh, but your background to publishing. Probably not the most conventional path because you were a mathematician in college. You then went into the Army as a second lieutenant. Uh, and then I think the story was told you got to, to, to do something where you prosecuted somebody in the Army and you got hooked on law and you went to law school. You had a law career and then novelist. So maybe not the most conventional path, but can you talk about that path and maybe how you think it helped you as a novelist and what challenges it presented for you as a novelist?
4: Well, I, you know, lawyers do a lot of writing, at least I did in my career. Um, And uh, uh, because I did a lot of internal investigations, I did a lot of uh, interviews and uh, document review and that sort of thing. And I love putting together the pieces of like a big, 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 big puzzle. Uh, And uh, you got to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying and uh, uh, who's trying to mislead you and... uh, uh, you do it in a corporate setting, and uh, corporate, corporations are all like families. Every one of them is different. They have different uh, policies and different uh, uh, ways of operating. And it's always a wonderful puzzle, as I said, to, uh, to figure it out. Uh, that, plus I'd long had an interest in mysteries. Um, I uh, sort of was my, uh, my uh, go-to place when I just needed to, to relax. And you put those together, and I, uh, I, I decided at some point I was going to write a mystery novel. Uh, and then I went to Hawaii, and I fell in love with the place. I started uh, doing research uh, at the Bishop uh, Museum and uh, the uh, University of Hawaii Manoa Library, and I got really into the, to the history, how the Polynesians found the place, how Kamehameha I uh, put it all together, uh, how it was an independent uh, nation for a hundred years recognized by the United States and others. And then we just expropriated it because we had commercial interests there and um, uh, it became a territory of the United States. So anyway, all of that history and the fact that I was interested in mysteries and that I would had a lot of investigative work in my career all came together and I decided I was going to tell the story of Hawaii but I was going to do it in a a mystery form.
0: We'll come back to the Hawaii part in just a minute. But, uh, you know, while you're practicing law, you've got a busy law practice and you're sort of noodling around with this idea of writing uh, a novel, uh, which is not the easiest thing to jump into when when you're going to jump into into writing. It's a real, uh, you know, it takes a while to do it. Uh, What did you find um, sort of helped you uh, from your discipline as a lawyer, but what did you find that you needed to unteach yourself, if that's the right way to look at it?
4: Well, you're certainly right that it was a struggle because that first book took me 20 years. I oh. did it while I was practicing, and I would write a chapter on vacation, or I would write a scene when I was on an airplane going someplace, and then I'd put it down for a month or two or five uh, while I was practicing, and then I'd come back to it. And uh... But the hardest part for me of transitioning, from being a lawyer to being a writer, was to free myself from some necessity to stick to reality. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, when you're in a courtroom, uh, you can tell your client's side of the story. But if you deviate too far from the facts, you lose credibility. Uh, you lose credibility with the judge and you get shot down by the, by the opposing counsel. So your, you, your, your work is tied to a set of facts, to a set of provable facts. Maybe sometimes less, sometimes more, but always tied to that provable set of facts. And when you're a novelist, you don't like the way the plot is shaping, you don't like the way the character's acting, you don't like the way the facts are developing,
1: you just change it, you just change it.
4: <laughs> and it took me a while to make that transition. So I didn't have to tell it the way it was, if I wanted to, to to change it to fit the story, uh, that's what I did. Yeah. And so that first book went through from uh, uh, looking like a, a, a nonfiction piece to uh, being a real uh, mystery novel.
0: That's great. I think I don't know who said it, but they said the difference between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction has to be believable. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so while you do have some some license there, you, you've also learned because of the research you've done that you've also got to make it a, 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 as true to life as it can possibly be.
4: That's right. Uh, it's got. The, it, you, if you lose, at least for me, you lose your readers if you get too far out there, uh, yeah. uh, away from what is uh, what is possible and what is believable, or you decide you want to write science fiction, which has never been my uh, yeah. been my uh, my uh, my thing.
0: Well. Um, before we talk about the main character and a little bit about this particular book, uh, let's talk about the setting, because um, I think you might agree that the setting that you've placed this mystery in is as much a character uh, as any of your characters are. Hawaii, you talked about that. Um, uh, you, have you lived on Hawaii? Have you, can, what, what can you tell us about? Uh, I've never been myself. What can you tell us about Hawaii that uh, people might not know who haven't been there?
4: Well, I lived out there off and on for, for 20 years. I had a second home out there and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to have some uh, really close Hawaiian friends, uh, and I learned a lot, and uh, you've stolen the words from me. I mean, Hawaii is a character in the book. It's just absolutely as much of a character as the protagonist. It shapes the people, it interacts with the people, and uh, it is a unique place. It is unique geographically, it's isolated by 2,400 miles from the nearest landmass. It's um, unique in its flora and fauna. It's uh, the only mammal there before uh, humans uh, arrived was the bat. Um, uh, so it's a, was a, it's a very unusual place with a very unusual history. I mean, it, its, uh, it's uh, a relationship with the United States is uh, tortured, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it's very much shaped by the geology, by the volcanism. I mean, Pele, the goddess of fire, the goddess of the volcano, she's a real person in Hawaii. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, you know, you've got this, uh, and I I enjoyed the book. It had a good pace to it, but also you have one scene that uh, we're not going to talk about what happens in the scene because it's later in the book, but there's a scene that takes place in a national park where this sort of I'm envisioning sort of a underground tunnel that's left over because of the volcanic, uh, ash that's come down. Can you talk about that park and what, what it is and where it is?
4: Yeah, that that's Hawaii volcanoes national park. Uh, it's one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Uh, I can remember walking on a beach up to lava that is not flowing, But inching its way across the 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 beach toward the ocean and you don't get closer than about eight feet because at eight feet your face just feels like it's on fire Uh, and you would see this this black blob and then the end of the black blob would turn red and then orange and then the blob would roll forward a foot or so and then just enough more surface area was available so it cooled but it turned black again. And then as more lava came through very slowly, it, uh, it would do it again and again and again. Well, that process takes place um, uh, uh, all over the island uh, in, in historical uh, times. And what happens is the lava flows, and then it, it uh, hardens over on top, and it flows through underground channels. And then these channels, when the volcanic action stops, they drain. And some of them are, you know, two or three feet long. Some of them are big enough to drive a tractor-trailer truck through. They're mm-hmm. huge. And in Volcanoes National Park, there's a very famous one of these lava tubes that you can walk through. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that and a, a part of that, which uh, most people don't know about, a kind of secret part, uh, plays a, a, a role, uh, a big role in the end of the, end of the book.
0: Yeah, what better uh, place to, uh, to have a shootout, right? <laughs>
4: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, these, these lava tubes, they're all over the island. Some of them uh, have become uh, groundwater, uh, places where groundwater goes uh, and flows. Uh, but some of them are very long. There some of them that are 20 miles long. There are others that uh, have, were burial spots for the Hawaiians where they would bury their dead. Uh, so there's a whole underground side of Hawaii mm. that most people never see or even hear about.
0: So um, this is a bit of a police procedural kind of a mystery because your main character, he does work for the uh, the, the, the local uh, municipal police, I think it is. How do you pronounce his name, by the way? It's Koakane. Okay, Koakane. Um, how did you decide, because you could have gone in any direction in choosing how to write a mystery, you know, whether to use a detective uh, as you did as your main character or to approach it from some other aspect. And I'm assuming that in your regular law practice, uh, you weren't always dealing with criminal matters. Uh, so how did you decide to go that direction and how much, uh, how much work did you have to do to get yourself up to speed about what it's actually like to to be in the role of this particular character?
4: Well, uh, first, first place, I gave a lot of thought to that, that question. I wanted this character to be Hawaiian, um, which was a big step for me to begin with because I'm not Hawaiian, and I'm very much aware of the allegations of, of cultural appropriation uh, that are uh, uh, flying around, and I wanted this to be genuine, um, and I wanted the character to use the Hawaiian language, which is really quite beautiful. Uh, i don't I don't speak it, but I know some of the words, and I have a person, in Hawaii, who corrects my uh, my Hawaiian for me. Um, uh, so that was one piece of it. Uh, I did a fair amount of criminal work as an attorney okay. uh, and so I knew pretty much what the police procedures were, what the indictment procedures were. They vary from state to state. Uh, uh, but uh, in general I had uh, a, a, a pretty good idea on that um, And I decided I wanted my character to have access to the uh, the, the technical side of uh, police work the the lab work, the fingerprints the the uh, 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 you know blood type, uh, the, the ultraviolet, uh, all of those kinds of things. And so I decided I wanted him to be uh, a, a policeman. A couple things helped on that. There is a, a, a program um, uh, for writers where you go and you spend uh, three or four days with a group of police officers who teach classes. Uh, it's the, the uh, Writers Police Academy. And I've been three or four times. It's a wonderful experience. And you get to really sit and talk with police officers. You get to hear some of the inside stories. You get to hear about the technology that they're using. They run, they run drills. I mean, you, uh, you uh, uh, take over uh, and clear buildings. Uh, you do all kinds of things. And so I learned a lot from, from, from that. But I also wanted to take this character and take him beyond the idea of a normal, a normal uh, police officer, and so I built him with a criminal past. Uh, as a as a teenager, he uh, uh, his father was uh, essentially murdered, uh, and in revenge for that, he gets into a fight with the uh, uh, person who uh, the murderer, and ultimately winds up killing him. Uh, and then covers up the crime. Mm. And so you have this, this tension in his life, uh, whereas he's done something that he must continue to hide from the world, and yet it drives him in many ways. It drives him because as a criminal who's fooled the police successfully, he knows a lot about how to commit a crime and how criminals think but by the same token, he's remorseful and he wants to do something useful with his life to uh, make up for uh, this uh, this deed. So you have that tension that works uh, uh, throughout the book uh, or throughout the series.
0: Yeah, and I will say to the listeners that uh, you can pick this book up even if you had not read the previous books in the series, which is what I did, um, and you sort of fall right into the... Uh, and you learn a little bit of the backstory about him in this book, but it's, it's, it's each one of these... Looks to me like it's a different sort of adventure with the same character, but in this one, it starts out with this attack on the chief detective's uh, brother. It escalates uh, into an attack on the law enforcement community generally. Um, I'm going to stop there and ask you if you got a little reading for us, and if you want to set it up, you can do that.
4: Okay. Well, uh, this uh, 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 takes place relatively early in the book, but not right at the beginning and uh, involves um, one of uh, Koa's colleagues, uh, a detective, Makanui, who has a very interesting background uh, of of her own. And with that, I'll uh, just read this. Detective Makanui rose, as usual, at 5.30 a.m., showered, dressed, and nearly inhaled her regular banana papaya smoothie. After a quick check of her email and a cursory scan of the local news headlines, she headed for her police SUV and the 30-minute drive from Volcano Volcano Village to police headquarters in Hilo. Opening her front door at precisely 6.30 a.m., she stepped into the crisp morning air. In an instant, the bullet from the Dragunov sniper rifle, traveling at over 2,600 feet per second, hit the left side of her chest just below her heart. The impact knocked her over, and she fell backwards into the house, hitting her head on the floor. Searing pain shot through her chest, and she struggled to breathe. Her vision narrowed. The world turned gray, and she passed out. Because she fell backwards, the second shot missed her. Mrs. Goya, a neighbor, heard the gunshots and called 911. The emergency call center quickly dispatched the police. When the computer system flagged Makinui's address as belonging to a police detective, Chief Detective Koa Kane got the call. Since he lived only a couple of miles away on the other side of Route 11, Koa was the first officer on the scene. He found his colleague Makinui unconscious just inside the front door of her house. At first he thought she was dead, but the rise and fall of her breathing dispelled that initial fear. Kneeling beside her, he felt for a pulse, relieved to find her still alive. He called the EMTs and checked for wounds. Strangely, he saw what appeared to be a bullet hole in her blouse, but no blood. He ripped the garment open and discovered a badly mangled bullet embedded in her protective vest just below her heart. He opened the vest. Beneath it, she was severely bruised and probably suffered broken ribs, but no bullet had penetrated her flesh. He couldn't tell whether the shock to her chest had knocked her out or she'd suffered a concussion from her fall. She was alive and would survive. The knowledge triggered an intense sense of relief. He'd recruited Makanui and worked closely with her. She had proven herself over and over on the job and they had become close personal and professional friends. Her death would have devastated him.
0: All right. Thanks for that. That, yeah, that was a um, tense scene. <laughs> you, you talk about that uh, dragging off rifle several times uh, early in the book, and then it's sort of tied to the mystery of trying to uncover who's behind all this. Uh, and w- one thing you do also, you've got uh, some interdepartmental departmental strife and conflict going on. You've got an outsider that's been appointed to the police department uh uh, who's perhaps not being as cooperative with the detective as he should be? You've got the mayor who might have his hands somehow in the mix, and you're not sure how. So you got the political intrigue. It seems like you've got several mysteries going on at once. You know, you're you're wondering who's behind this, but also you're kind of worried about what may happen to the main character and and who's behind it uh, politically. Is do you try to um, as you're thinking through plotting these books? Do you try to add a number of different layers? to the mystery so there's not just one thing that the reader is guessing about, but there's more than one thing we're guessing about?
4: Uh, the answer is yes. I try to, to, to do that. The trick is to, is to have different uh, plot lines, if you will, or subplots, but to bring them together at the end of the book, um, uh, but to do it in a way that the reader doesn't necessarily anticipate. I mean, one, of my, one of my favorite uh, uh, aspects of writing mysteries is something that uh, writers call misdirection, um, uh, where you lead the reader in one direction and, and surprise the reader with uh, a shift uh, uh, or some event or some change in the, in the uh, environment that, uh, that causes the reader to say, oh, that's not where I thought we were going. And uh, there are lots of techniques that you can use to create misdirection, but I think you'll find that there's a lot of misdirection in all of the all of the novels. And part of doing that is to have multiple plots that you can play with.
0: Yeah, I saw a meme on uh, Facebook recently that said, how many writers does it take to screw in a light bulb? And they said, uh, two to get it started, and then one to add an unexpected twist at the end. <laughs> 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 and that's, that's what you're trying to do You're trying to, you're trying to add that unexpected uh, twist at the end
4: uh, well, talk- when, you, when you speak about the unexpected twist at the end There's another uh, technique of misdirection That I particularly like and is used at the end of the book And that is the book comes to an end The story locks up, it finishes, it's over, it's done And then all of a sudden it's not there's yeah. another piece and that another piece may lead to another book it may lead to another scene but it's it, you're not expecting that that last step
0: and
1: that's
4: again a a, a a wonderful technique to kind of keep readers on their toes
0: yeah i enjoyed that too uh well you said uh, when you when you talked about this book um elsewhere you said you you wrote with two themes in mind uh one you wanted to highlight the uh your main characters persistence, uh, and resilience. And the second was, uh, had to do with, uh, uh, motive, uh, that is retribution it has, is, is some, to some extent about motive, you know, who did it. And you said, uh, that detectives usually look for opportunity means and motive and the latter is often the key to solving a crime. And, and throughout this book, the detective couldn't figure out who, what, when, I mean, why someone would be doing what they were doing. Um, And those, those things seem to go together. I mean, because given what you did, you've got to have incredible persistence and resilience. Um, Is that why you like being around this particular character and hanging out with him? Because uh, he doesn't take no for an answer and he keeps at it.
4: He's got, he's got his own moral code and um, uh, that drives him. And uh, when he gets told uh, uh, by the police chief or by the mayor uh, to back off, um, he frequently uh, finds another way around the obstacle. Uh, one of the expressions that you'll find in, in um, the, the, uh, several of the books is that uh, Koa believes that uh, the wealthy and the powerful and the well-connected commit just as many crimes, if not more, than uh, the, uh, the simple folk, uh, the ordinary people. Uh, and, uh, he's not about to get, uh, uh, put off by the mayor or the police chief when his target is, um, uh, uh, is, uh, one of the rich and powerful.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's do this. We got, we got time for a few writing life questions. Uh, can you, uh, tell us a little bit about your writing practice?
4: Um, well, my writing practice first place is on a computer. I do it all on a computer. Um, I'm actually fond of the uh, Scribner program, which allows me to, to uh, take, you can write a whole uh, scene uh, in the sense of a whole plot line, uh, and then you can write a whole other plot line, and then it's very easy to mix and match them and fit them back together into a story that goes back and forth. So it's a, it's a, it's a, wonderful, uh, it's, it's a wonderful tool. People ask me, do I get up in the morning and ride? Do I ride at night? I, I ride all the time. Um, uh, uh, you know, I may get up in the morning and uh, uh, tear into it. Uh, I may hit a little bit of a roadblock and I'll go and I'll walk and I'll uh, think and I'll do something else for a while. And I'll figure out how to, how to, how to uh, overcome that, uh, that, that obstacle. And sometimes when I get to a point where I'm not sure where I want to go, I'll outline four or five options uh, for where I'm going to take, take it next. And one of those will usually will usually appeal to me and, and win out.
0: Well, Scrivener uh, must be appealing to, to lawyer types because I, I got drawn to it as well for the simple reason that I could drop uh, scenes in these little folders to the left. And then when I decided I needed to move them around, it was very easy to grab it and move it without having to go find it, you know, in a Word document. And you can almost use that left side of the, with all the folders in it to uh, sort of create your outline as you go. So I've, I've found Scrivener to be helpful as well.
4: It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very good program. The other thing that I will say about my, my, my writing, I do a lot of editing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, I was used to editing and being edited as right. a lawyer. Uh, in other words, if a colleague gave me a brief, the only reason I was going to read the brief is to try to make it better. Uh, 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 you know, It wasn't just for, for fun. And if I gave someone else a brief to read, um, uh, I wanted them to make it better. Uh, so that process is a natural one for me. And I, I love working with a good editor. Uh, my wife actually is a, uh, quite a good editor. Uh, and I've employed from time to time uh, other professionals. As I said, I have a, 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 a wonderful talented woman in Hawaii who reads the novels for me and corrects all of the Hawaiian. Uh, And sometimes she'll go beyond that and offer suggestions that uh, are are useful. So it's a very iterative process. And I find sometimes if I get to a later chapter and I have this great idea about how I'm going to make this chapter unfold, I have to go back and lay the foundation for that development in the earlier chapters. So I go back and I rewrite, I rewrite, I rewrite until I get a a story that I like.
0: Well, I suspect that's true. Um, Most lawyers, when they pick up a brief to read it before it's filed, they pick it up with a pen in their hand. And I'm sure editors probably do the same because they know they're going to start marking on it and and changing something uh, to justify their time (laughs) sitting there with it. but you're right. I mean, the editing makes the work better and that's uh, I've seen that that's uh, where things improve. Now, just a quick question about writing a series. Did you did um you find and uh, and this relate, question relates to, you know, coming up with fresh ideas for your main character's arc. You know, plot lines are one thing, right? They're they're you saw something, you thought of something, you're going to bring different bad guys into play, you're going to create a different way that somebody, you know, gets into trouble with the law but you also got internal issues going on with your main character. And so he's growing over four or five novels. Do you find it challenging to figure out where he's going to go next and uh, maybe what new backstory information you might throw in on your character?
4: Um, I, I, yes, I, I, I find it, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting topic to think about and to, and to worry about. Um, one of the, the, uh, the, the things that I found useful is that Koa has a brother, Akeka, who is a career criminal. Uh, and uh, the interaction between Koa and Aikeka, uh, 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 particularly given Koa's criminal background, is very fertile material for the development of, of his character. And I think you, you probably see that the best in um, the fourth book in the series, which is Treachery Times Two, where you go, there's a real deep dive into Koa's Backstory, and uh, you see a lot of the development of his of his character uh, in that uh, in that book.
0: Yeah. Oh, so this is a question we always ask, and we'll kind of wrap it up on the writing life side here with this one. Uh, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value uh, that had you known it when you started out uh, doing this thing called novel writing, uh, that would have helped you had you known it then, what would it be?
4: Uh, I, I guess. To come back to something I said earlier, it, it, it would be first to let go a little easier of the necessity for everything to be, quote, accurate, end quote. Um, uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, and then second, um, I think the best research that writers can do is to live. Uh, and you need to collect your experiences in a way that you can remember them and, and reduce them to writing. And I find, for example, one of the things I've discovered a little bit later is that if I see something and I think I'm going to put it in the book, I get my cell phone out and I take a bunch of pictures because that enables me to add the level of detail. What, would, what did it say in the store window? What was, the, uh, what was odd about this street? Um, uh, Why were these two particular stores next to each other? Uh, All those kinds of tiny, tiny little details make a story more believable. They draw readers in. And um, I wish I'd kind of gotten onto that earlier and created not so much a diary as as just a collection of uh, uh, phrases, of pictures, of ideas, of, um, scenes that, uh, you can, uh, use as resources later. All
0: right. That's a great tip. And, uh, I'm glad I found your series. I look forward to seeing what, uh, what our main character gets up to next. Uh, Bob, I want to thank you for, uh, participating with us here today on Charlotte Readers podcast.
4: Well, it's a real pleasure to be there, be there with you. And I, uh, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity.
2: For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit.
0: All right, uh, listen, welcome back to Act Two. This is uh, our writing topic segment of the show. We've got a a two-minute tip from Charlotte. We've also got a blog post. First, the two-minute tip, starting with uh, Paul Reale, Rules of Writing, Part One morning pages and I know Julia Cameron is going to come up in this so uh, let's listen in and see what he has to say
5: hi I'm Paul Reale co-founder of Charlotte lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte readers podcast this is one of a series of tips about the so-called rules of writing a common bit of advice is to begin every day by writing what are called morning pages here's a quick history more than 30 years ago Julia Cameron ran workshops in New York City helping artists who were blocked to get unblocked. In 1992, this became a book called The Artist's Way, which is now regarded as a seminal work on creativity. The Artist's Way, usually presented as a 12-week class, has three basic tools. The creativity contract, the artist date, and morning pages. The practice of morning pages is simply this. After waking, write three pages of whatever is in your head. This is not intended to be art or to be read by anyone. It is intended to clear out the muck in your brain and get it moving. Cameron says, the morning pages are the primary tool of creative recovery. This sentence represents the heart of the misunderstanding about morning pages. While morning pages can jumpstart your creativity, that's not the purpose for which they were invented. Cameron says that many people who go through the Artist's Way program end up writing morning pages every day, forever, even after the 12 weeks, even after they are no longer blocked. But for many, morning pages begin to feel unnecessary and eventually like a burden, an obstacle to getting on with the creative work itself. And now I must talk out of the other side of my mouth, or at least out of the other side of the debate. For many people, the blank page is an obstacle. For anyone experiencing that, morning pages can be a gift. If you are creatively blocked, morning pages and the rest of the Artist's Way program can be a viable solution for you. Yet I also believe that once you've become unstuck, that your time is better spent on the creative work. If you're not stuck, try writing your way into the work with a single paragraph that describes what you're planning to work on and what you'd like to keep in mind as you write. That will save you the 30 minutes that the morning pages would have cost you. So use the morning pages if they work for you and let them go when they no longer do. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Lit, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips.
0: All right. Thank you, Paul. This uh, this can be a bit of a controversial topic uh, for those who've been through the program or those who haven't. Uh, it, uh, And I'm, I'm glad you talked about both sides of this. I don't know if either one of you have, uh, Sarah, Hannah. Uh, participated in uh, Morning Pages or the Cameron course, uh, whether you have or haven't? Thoughts?
2: No, I, I've never participated in it, but I've heard of it. And I've Morning Pages are definitely a topic that I've heard people have different kind of polarizing <laughs> opinions on, so I'm glad that Paul is talking about this. I think that, I mean, there's something to be said for that idea of just getting yourself unstuck and kind of getting your brain moving and doing something creative early in the day, but three full pages every single morning like that's that's a lot lot. (laughs) and for a lot of people I mean I, I guess the the sort of advice is to take 30 minutes to do the morning pages typically which you know for some people finding 30 minutes to write in a day is an achievement and so if you're spending that whole 30 minutes on just kind of clearing out the clutter in your brain as opposed to actually working on a project that you want to make progress on then that's that's kind of a waste of your writing time i feel like but I, I like what paul said about maybe do like a paragraph or a shorter version to get yourself started and then keep going with um something that you're more sort of focused on
0: yeah the important thing here is because i took the 12-week course and uh participated in it and i always my morning pages just to meet my assignment requirement usually got written at about midnight the night before <laughs> the next day of class technically morning it, yeah it, <laughs> but but uh for to think about the course, as he said, it's a, it is dealing with people that are dealing with all kinds of issues um, that are causing them to get stuck. Maybe they don't, they can't get writing going, or whatever, whatever artistic pursuit they're in. People are telling them they can't do it. People are telling them this or that. So it's a way to get your thoughts down on paper, and it's almost therapeutic uh, to write it. But Paul's point's a good one, and it's what I found myself bumping up against, which was I don't need to be spending you know, 30 to 45 minutes to an hour writing about stuff that's floating around my head. I'd rather work on the project than I'm working on to get that kind of information down on the page. But there's there's both sides of it. I expect, uh, Hannah, that uh, Gwen is really into the morning pages very early in the morning, right?
3: Yeah, she likes to write hers at about 3.30. That's her golden <laughs> hour, so. <laughs> her, she must get some, you know, creative inspiration from her dreams.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good post. I don't know, Hannah, have you ever uh, experienced, I mean, could it could be, it's almost similar to a to a diary that nobody ever is intended yeah. to see. You're just kind of letting your thoughts down on paper and, uh, you know, it can work into something that you're working on, but uh, it all, also can just be a therapeutic exercise.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what I was thinking of. It sounds kind of just more of like a general journaling concept in a way, or you're, which can lead to creative things, which I guess is kind of what he's saying too, or what the whole concept is about. It's just kind of like if you do a kind of like an idea purge and you get all this stuff on the page that's going on in your life or whatever you're doing it's like that's kind of sometimes how stories are born um but it's kind of like therapy you know in your life where sometimes you're like oh I really need this there's a lot going on like I have to do this to get to the next stage and then there's other times where you're kind of just like no I'm good (laughs) I'm good right now I don't need to spend an hour talking about this I feel fine um so it's kind it seems kind of like that so I feel like yeah it's when you need to do it and you're feeling stuck or cluttered go for it but other Otherwise I feel like it's kind of feels like you're diddle daddling or twiddling your thumbs or whatever, when you could be doing something that you actually have to get done. So, um, yeah.
0: Now for all you acolytes of Julia Cameron out there, we don't mean to disparage this uh, process by any means. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, different people approach it different ways. And Amy Williams, Amy, if you're listening, uh, Amy, you taught the class that I took, uh, I really did get something out of the class. There's a lot more to to it than just the morning pages. There are other aspects of what she talks about, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 something maybe uh, look up if you want to consider it. Try it uh, for a week or so, see so if you like it. Uh, or as Paul says, it's like any other advice that uh, comes on this podcast or anywhere else about writing. You use what works for you and disregard what doesn't. That's sort of our mantra here mm-hmm. at, at the podcast. Love that. So. Uh, All right, so uh, we're gonna shift now to uh, our community blog. This is uh, uh, Dana Sachs, our author. The title of her blog post is Chronicling the Uniquely Human Need to Lend a Hand Even in the Darkest Times. Uh, Hannah, you wanna tell us about Dana?
3: Yeah, uh, Dana is a journalist, novelist, and co-founder of the nonprofit Humanity Now, which supports grassroots teams providing aid to displaced people. She's a former Fulbright scholar. She's the author of three works of nonfiction: The House on Dream Street, The Life Where We Were, Where We Were Given, and All Else Failed, as well as the novels If You Lived Here and The Secret of the Nightingale Palace. Um, her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, National Geographic, and Mother Jones. Sachs lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. Go Seahawks. uh, (laughs) Yeah,
0: so here's here's her blog.
1: Hi, this is Dana Sachs. I'm reading my essay, chronicling the uniquely human need to lend a hand, even in the darkest times. You can just go volunteer in a refugee camp? Apparently, yes. In 2016, a friend decided to join a fledgling grassroots aid effort at a makeshift border camp in Northern Greece As a writer, I had long explored themes of displacement. For months, I'd watch with alarm as Europe's migration crisis grew increasingly calamitous. Drownings in the Mediterranean, thousands sleeping in train stations and ports, tent encampments springing up in border regions. But until she told me of her plan, I had not known that volunteers from around the world had galvanized to help. Can I go with you, I asked. A month later, the two of us arrived at the camp on Greece's northern border. Thousands of refugees and migrants were sleeping in tents in the muddy fields beside a small Greek village called Edomene. For 10 days, we worked alongside other volunteers, organizing donations, serving soup out of the back of a truck, distributing used clothes. I can't say that this was an entirely successful operation. Many things went wrong, but one fact was obvious and important. A lot of individuals had seen a humanitarian disaster unfolding in Greece and they were helping to reduce the suffering there. Ever since then, I've followed the development of this aid movement both as a member of the grassroots community and as a writer determined to chronicle these historic events. I wrote All Else Failed, the unlikely volunteers at the heart of the migrant aid crisis to highlight something that we all witness but rarely discuss the very human desire to lend a hand. I don't mean to suggest that all else failed looks only at the positive outcomes of this volunteer effort. In order to better understand displacement, we need to consider it in all its breadth, not only by recognizing what's gone wrong, but also acknowledging the extraordinary good will that people have shown one another. Only then can we understand this global crisis and the many ways we might effectively address it. My story begins in 2015, when arrivals of refugees to Greece were increasing exponentially, mostly because of continuing violence in the Middle East. On the Aegean Islands, thousands of people arrived in boats every day. They were sick, hungry, traumatized by war, and they needed almost everything—food, blankets, medicine, diapers—but the world's most prominent humanitarian actors. The Red Cross, the International Rescue Committee, and the United Nations became stalled as they tried to figure out what to do. Into that void stepped hundreds and eventually thousands of volunteers. They were Greek villagers, Swedish college students, tourists, and even refugees themselves. They couldn't end the crisis. The world needs governments to end this crisis. But they helped keep a humanitarian emergency from becoming a complete disaster. My book follows seven individuals and families who joined this aid effort. New Zealanders Jenny James, saved people drowning from the sea, worked to improve squalid camps and even constructed a dinosaur-themed playground for refugee children. Ibrahim Khoury from Syria stepped off a boat himself in 2015 and immediately joined the relief effort, managing thousands of euros in aid. English social worker, Conwall Mollick, ended up managing an illegal housing accommodation that sheltered 400 displaced people. As All Else Failed demonstrates, these individuals and many more filled in for a faltering international aid system, providing support to desperate people. I find solace in the grit and determination of the volunteers who offer a stirring model for addressing global problems. Their efforts are not enough. In fact, the very existence of volunteer aid workers underscores the need for a more effective official relief apparatus. But rather than doing nothing in the face of overwhelming need and institutional failure, volunteers demonstrate how each of us, in small ways and large, can contribute something valuable. One day in Greece, a young volunteer showed me around a community center that her small aid team had opened as a haven for refugees living in a nearby camp. The center, called, of all things, One Happy Family, was a ramshackle building, much of it renovated with repurposed junk. The operation never had enough money, but it somehow stayed open. When I asked this volunteer about the prospect for the coming months, she an- her answer perfectly captured the spirit of the aid effort. I don't know how we'll do it, she told me, but everything is feasible somehow.
0: All right, uh, thank you. Uh Dana for that. Uh, a little bit different, um, blog post than what we normally have. This is not necessarily on writing itself, although there are some things about what she's done here. I think that speak to, uh, the writing process because she found a theme, uh, well, more, more than just a theme. She found uh, a series of events and, and people that were involved in it that she obviously became passionate, uh, about, uh, writing, uh, a story about. And, uh, the true story, in fact. So, uh, again, we're not necessarily offering writing advice here, but we're sort of commenting on, you know, with all the bad that goes on in the world, this is a perfect example of some of the good things, and she's drawing them out. It's nonfiction, um, and uh, I'll kick it to you all for some of your thoughts. Uh, I just uh, I think it's a great story. It's, uh, I guess it does tie in a little synergy here with inspiration because she obviously must have been inspired to write about this.
3: Yeah, if that's what I was thinking is definitely a lot of um, you could feel how inspired she was just through all that she's observed and the things that she's seen and that kind of thing. And very informative, too, is an interesting post, just kind of learning a little bit more about those experiences and what's going on over there. And um, I can imagine coming out of an experience like that, you kind of have so much inspiration and just like a cause you want to write about and stories that you want to share that are important to share with everybody. So um, and I, I love the, the title of the post too, just, you know, how we're all kind of drawn to help even dark times. And you kind of made me think of COVID even, you know, just like the pandemic and all of us sort of coming together because we just needed that connection and to help each other with our creative projects and things like that. So, I mean, super inspiring and, um, great post, Dana. I love that.
0: Yeah. And I'm guessing that she is, uh, was not in need of morning pages to get, uh, <laughs> you know, something <laughs> on the blank page but she not. was witnessing and observing, <laughs> What are your thoughts, Sarah?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely a powerful essay. Um, and I think that it's a good example for all of us. We we hear about things that are going on and people who need help. And it's so easy to turn a blind eye and to just go out there and, and do it and be like, I'm going to help. I think that's a really, um, really admirable thing. And I think as a, a writing takeaway, it's kind of like, let me see if I can find the quote. We had that quote from Anthony Abbott in book one. Um, I've got oh, yeah, the book right here. How,
0: uh, Writing is not writing necessarily. Writing is about living. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, writing is not about writing necessarily. Writing is about living. And the more deeply and fully you live, the more you're able to write. Um, and I think that this post is a great example of that because if you're an engaged person, if you're educated, if you're observing the world and observing people and going out there and traveling, going to new places, meeting people, doing things that are difficult and that push yourself and that, kind of expand you as a person that's all going to add to your writing um because it all becomes inspiration and not that that should be necessarily the motivation for going out and helping people but i think that it all adds into just making you a more well-rounded person mentally and emotionally and that's all gonna gonna show up in your writing as well
0: all right great points all right listeners uh, uh right after this we're coming back with act three our book recommendations and uh we've got a couple of uh uh, elevator pitches as well, and uh, and also what's coming next on the podcast. So uh, stay with us.
2: We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook.
0: Hey, listeners, welcome back. Uh, we've got some book recommendations now for you, uh, starting off with uh, Sarah. Sarah, what you got this week?
2: Um, so this week I'm recommending Sophie Scholl and the White Rose by Annette Dumbach and Judd Newborn, which is nonfiction. Um, I think I recommended another book about this topic not too long ago on the show. I've been doing a lot of research on the White Rose movement, um, which was a, a student resistance resistance movement in Munich, Germany during uh, World War II. Um, A group of students who started writing these pamphlets kind of calling out the abuses of the Nazi, Nazi regime and calling on people to resist. Um, and they distributed them anonymously, put them out all over the country. Eventually, they expanded and, and got sent out to other countries as well. Um, and the the students all, unfortunately, were caught and were execu- executed by the Gestapo. But it was a really interesting kind of chapter in history, um, and in particular, Sophie Scholl, who was the only female in the movement. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on her for a writing project that I'm doing. But this book, I think, is a great sort of entry point to learning about this time in history um, and this particular movement and group of people. Um, it gives a good overview of each of the individuals in the group. It gives a lot of the historical context about the history of Munich and what was going on in Germany and Russia at the time. Um, and even though it's it's nonfiction and it's scholarly and it's historical, it's a very compelling read. I mean, it's written with emotion. It's, it's such an intense story that it's hard to write about in an write about it in a dry way I guess but they they bring some of that in here Um, and so if you're interested at all in the White Rose movement or if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to check out this book.
0: All right, sounds really interesting. Uh, Hannah, what do you got for us this week?
3: Yeah, that also Sarah, you've probably seen Mr. Robot. Have you seen it? There's that like the White Rose concept in that show. I feel like I always get on this tangent asking about TV. (laughs) There's there's also like (laughs) this uh,
2: um uh, uh, like an anti vaxxer movement now that's calling themselves the White Rose, oh, which really? I won't, I'm not going to get into that on the show. But <laughs> yeah, there <Yeah. laughs> yeah. when when White Rose
0: in Hunger, Hunger Games too? That the evil, evil doer war? Probably, probably the, probably yeah. the resistance. Yeah.
3: You know, probably. Um, uh, that's interesting though. So I'm recommending a book called Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler this week. It's her first novel. Um, I feel like I kind of relate to this author a little bit. She's a communications person um, who lives in London and she's kind of writes a lot about her experiences, but whips it into a novel. Um, so it's about a kind of like a de- depression, you know, kind of anxiety, te- deep diving into those issues, but also kind of um, like about a relationship that's just not really working out. Um one person is more into it than the other and it's just sort of leads into kind of a tumultuous experience. So um, I'm sure if you guys have probably gathered from my recommendations, I really kind of enjoy uh, themes that explore. um, I don't enjoy them, but like Mm -hmm. I think it's important to read about abuse and psychological Mm -hmm. abuse and what that looks like. So that's kind of um, what this book explores and it's, it's also kind of fun too. She's funny and it takes place in London. So it's, um, it's a good little
0: jaunt. And sticking with our theme of us (laughs) recommending different kinds of books, uh, I'm back here with Louis L'Amour, one of my favorite authors. the guy wrote 105 books. That's a lot of books uh, in his lifetime. Uh, Mostly known for his westerns, but uh, he wrote a book that I I think I still have a dog-eared kind of paperback of this up in my cabin. It's called The Walking Drum. And the main character was a fellow named Kurbachard. I don't even I might be butchering that but uh it's one of these journey books you know hero journey books he's a warrior in this time in the 12th century uh he ends up he goes from the castle to the slave gallery there's a bunch of sword fights there's a princess he has to rescue <laughs> there's a fortress there's a you know it's this just, just one of these adventure books and because he uh, is so uh yeah such a good storyteller um from all the experience he had writing these westerns He really brings alive that time period with this particular character. So I recommend uh, Lily Moore's The Walking Drum. And now we have something from Mark West.
6: Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte blog. Now that summer is upon us, it's a good time to be thinking about going to the beach and what books we should bring to the beach. Well, my recommendation today is such a book It's by Charlotte Ryder, Kim Wright, and the book I'm recommending is called The Longest Day of the Year, which, of course, is Summer Solstice. This book is about four women who meet at the beach. All of them are at different stages in their lives, and they share their stories over the course of one day. In some ways, this is a book that has four stories in it. But the stories combined and intertwine in interesting ways. I highly recommend the longest day of the year for you to read on the beach. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we had Kim Wright on the podcast, folks. So you can either scroll back or you can go to our website. Uh, and we've got a list of uh, all the authors that are featured. There is an alphabetical guest list of uh, first name, Kim Right. I really love that book. Uh, it's got a huge major twist at the end, but uh, you deal with the lives of four women, as you said, at different stages in life, and it's at the beach. Uh, Hannah, you're going to love this book, you know. <laughs> you know oh, yeah. Since you're such a beach girl, yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, great uh, recommendation today. Let's uh, let's do this. We've got a couple of elevator pitches, uh, uh, other books to be recommended to you. First of all, we've got... Uh, 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 elevator Pitch by author David Weinberg. Let's listen to his pitch now.
6: My name is David Weinberg, and my romantic comedy is entitled Scrooge's Folly Saving Jacob Marley. Award-winning but down on her luck, playwright Andrea Smilo becomes involved in a curious working relationship with the spirit of the real Jacob Marley and falls in love with him along the way.
0: That's a little twisty, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> took, took Charles Dickens' story and uh, turned it on his head. Very clever, very interesting. Yeah, could Thanks, be a David. Be
2: companion to your Christmas courtroom mysteries. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that's great. Um, all right, well, we got another one here, too. Uh, we got Robert uh, Babarad, uh, Elevator Pitch. Uh, Robert, if I mispronounce your last name, I'm sorry. We'll find out in just a second.
4: Has life ever not
1: met your expectations? Have you ever thought about leaving it all behind to find out what the world is really like and what's really out there? That's the start of being an in-transit passenger and making your own journey matter.
0: All right. Uh, two interesting uh, elevator pitches there, all within 30 seconds. Uh, it's not easy, listeners. you got to practice that. you got to do it because uh, you write a whole book and you're trying to hone it down to something like that. It's uh, uh, And we're going to... Um, we want your elevator pitches. So send them to us and we'll get them on the podcast and hopefully, uh, uh, you'll do that. Uh, as I said, it's not easy. It's, you know, it's like writing that synopsis on the back of the book. Uh, you write this whole thing and then you're trying to hone it down to just a few words. But, uh, it's important because uh, when people ask you about your book, if you're talking five minutes later, their eyes might roll back in their head. So, you know, <laughs> try, try to work on that. Th- work on that pitch, right, Hannah, being a book yeah, publicist. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hunt, hunt it down. Um, all right. Uh, well, let's see. We've got, uh, sir, I think we've, uh, our street team's been active here with uh, recommendations about uh, book one. You want to share some of that?
2: Yeah, we're going to share a couple of reviews from um, our street team and other readers who have been leaving some great reviews on Amazon and Goodreads for Book One in the Right Quote series. So here are a couple that we picked out. Um, this is from PJ Anderson, who we also recently discussed his great blog post on the show. So thanks for that. And he says, this is a really neat collection of observations, reflections, and words of wisdom from authors across the spectrum. Charlotte Reader's podcast is such a great show for writers and readers alike. And this book is a nice encapsulation of the insights found regularly on the podcast. As an author, the book is quite useful for, for inspiration during those tough times when motivation is low, and I need a reminder why I do this writing thing. I think avid readers who don't write would also enjoy it as a behind-the-scenes on what fuels the creative process. Highly recommended.
0: Oh, um, yeah, thanks for that, PJ. Words, yeah. Yeah.
2: And uh, Nora says, writers will enjoy these quick takes on the writing life, will identify with most, be amused by many, and come away with more insight to what makes us storytellers. Readers will enjoy seeing behind the curtain. Um, great, great thoughts from both of them.
0: Yeah, thanks for those. Uh, uh, and if you want to join our straight team, Hannah, you want to tell them how they do that?
3: Yeah, you can do it a couple different ways. You can join by heading to the contact tab on our nav bar on the podcast website. Um, there'll be a link in there and some information on how to join in. Um, or you could always be a Patreon member for only $5 <laughs> a month <laughs> and you get all the books for free. And um, That's something else
0: i think <laughs> your dogs like patreon they're barking every time you mention the i know like seriously
3: yeah. i'm like really <laughs> <laughs> i think they
0: did join recently i think i, I think i've got you them. saw gracie <laughs> and fiona larue yeah. join yeah yeah, they i <laughs> got a hold of your credit card yeah. Yeah. They, they keep yeah. doing that they, they have some questions <laughs> about the credit card thing you know but it was I like
3: a two thousand dollar charge for treats the other day i was like oh, guys <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well uh Sarah, we're going to have another episode. you want to tell our listeners what's coming?
2: Uh, Sure. Next time we've got a feature with author and award-winning filmmaker Nick Brooks and his novel Promise Boys, which Kirkus calls breathtakingly complex and intriguing, and Booklist calls a top-notch and deep character study little group readers. I'm excited to listen to that interview. His work is so cool. And we also feature um, our very own Landis Wade with a blog post titled The Three-Act Book Launch. And we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte-lit two-minute tip elevator pitches and book recommendations
0: all right well uh, hannah take us out of here
3: all right guys read on ride on and rock on